This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. This week's Parsha is Parsha Shmini. And when we talk about Parsha Shmini, I think Vayihi uh, Bayom HaShmini, many people, if you ask them, what is the Yom HaShmini? What is the eighth day? Uh, they have no clue. They don't know eighth day of what? So let's try and explain, by way of introduction to today's shear, what exactly is the eighth day. And once we've described the eighth day, we will talk a little bit about the sin of Nadav and Avihu, or the phenomena of why Nadav and Avihu lost their lives. So let's start with the Om Hashmini. This is the eighth day of what? It is the eighth day of the Miluim. The Miluim is a ceremony that we've already heard about in Shemot, chapter 29. Uh, it is the seven-day ceremony of dedication of the Mishkan, and also the inauguration of the Kohanim. It is called the Miluim because we are told that for seven days they will have to lemalei et yadam. Uh, we have a, a korban called the El HaMiluim, and the idea is that for seven days... Um, they will fill their hands, meaning they will appoint them to the correct, dish, uh, correct position. I'm um, reading now from Shemot Perek Haftet Pasuk Lamad Hey. Vasita laharon ulvanav kacha kechol ashetziviti otacha shivat yamim tamale yadam. For seven days, you will fill their hands. For seven days, they will engage in the avodat hamishkan, um, so that they will become inaugurated through a ceremony of an entire week. However, what is not uh, mentioned anywhere in Sefer Shemot is the Yom HaShmini. On the eighth day, at the culmination of this, this whole week, where the Kohanim aren't meant to leave the entrance of the Ohel Mo'ed, after the entire week, um, we have an eighth day with special Korbanot, uh, the opinion of Ravyol Binun, and you can see his ideas written up in a Rav Liptag Shiorim, www.tanach.org, um, is that in some way this is a kapara for the for the golden calf. This is some sort of uh, mode of atoning for the sins of the Egel Hazahav. And uh, this is already hinted at in the opening lines of Rashi on the uh, on the parsha where he says, Kach lecha Egel, take an Egel lehodia, that this calf will atone for the other calf which was made. However, the focus of the Yom HaShmini, beyond all the sacrifices, beyond all the korbanot, is the following, and I'll read from Pasuk Dalad, Pasuk He, where, oh, maybe I should already start at Pasuk Aleph, it was on the eighth day, he calls not only Aaron and his sons, but also all the elders, and he gives them the instructions of the Mizbeach, of, of all the Korbanot to be brought on the Mizbeach, the rationale being, Pasuk Dalad, Ki Hayom Hashem Nira Aleichem, today will be a day in which God will evidently appear to you. And not only do they bring Aharon and his sons and all of the elders, but it says, The whole community came, the whole camp came. 
they they stood before God and Moshe said this is what you should do so that the presence of God will appear to you how does the presence of God appear to the people it's very clear if you look at the end of the chapter at the end of chapter 9 that it tells us that after all of the korbanot fire comes out from God and it eats up on the altar the burnt offering and all of the fats and all the people see the fire of God coming out they shout, they salute God they they, they fall on their faces this is a after seven days of inauguration and a special eighth day suddenly the presence of God becomes evident on the Mizbeach. And this is a very special moment, because until now we have seen the revelation of God in the Mishkan, in the form of a cloud. But then it only appeared to Moshe. The last lines of Sefer Shemot tell us that Moshe could not enter into the Ol Mo'ed because God's presence was there. Moshe couldn't go in. But the people had no evidence. The people didn't know that God's presence was there. They couldn't um, feel the presence of God. But now that the fire comes out from God and eats up all of the sacrifices that have been brought on their behalf in the Mizbeach, the altar which stands outside in the sight of everybody, the people really gain the sense that Hashem's, Hashem's presence is with them. These are the last psukim of chapter 9, and this is definitely describing a phenomenally joyous occasion in the history of B'nai Israel. The moment in which God reveals his presence to the people by eating, by, by fire coming down from heaven and eating their sacrifices. And we see echoes of this moment later on in history. We see echoes of this later on in the way that Divrei Hayamim describes fire coming down at the inauguration of the first temple. And maybe more familiar to us is the image of fire coming down from heaven, in the case of Eliyahu Navi, on Mount Carmel. However, I think few people connect the last pasuk of Peraktet, where fire comes down and eats on the Mizbeach, with the first pasuk of Perakud. What does it say in the beginning of Perakud? And the sons of Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, each took Ishmachtato, took their firepans, Vaitnubahem Aish, they put fire on them, Vyasimualehem Katoret, and they put incense, Vyakrivu Lifne Hashem Aish Zara. And they offered up before God alien fire, strange fire, Ashelotsiva Utam. I don't know what Aish Zara is, but the next phrase explains Ashelotsiva Utam. It is illicit because. They were not commanded. Fire comes out from before God. And it consumed them. And they died before God. Now, probably many of us are familiar. I mean, we always ask the question, what did Nadav and Avihu do wrong? And of course, the Psukim themselves tell us very clearly what they did wrong. They brought a zara. They brought foreign fire, which God had not commanded. However, 
because we're very influenced by Rashi and by Chazal, if you ask most uh, most children, what did Nadav and Aviyu do wrong? They will tell you very simply that they were drunk. They quote uh, the opinion of Rabbi Ishmael, quoted by Rashi, that they were intoxicated, they were drunk. And I think that uh, many people, I mean, I think it's very clear where this comes from. If you look further down in Perak Yud, down to Pasuk Chet and Tet, it says very clearly, Yain v'sheicha al teisht, ata uvanecha itcha b'boachem elol mo'ed, v'lo tamutu, you shouldn't drink wine, you shouldn't drink sheichar, any other intoxicating drink, you and your children, when you come into the Omo'ed, v'lo tamutu, that you not die. Of course, who just died? Nadavanavihu. So they must have had drunken wine or some other intoxicating substance. And that, of course, is the opinion of Rashi, um, the most famous opinion. Rashi actually brings another opinion, which we, we probably will not manage to get to uh, today. However, I would like to focus on two other possible explanations um, which will explain this. And the first one I'd like to explain on the basis of the flow of events from chapter 9 through to chapter 10. The first thing that I'd like to, to, to point out is this uh, proximity of the fact that in Peretet, Pasuk Haftalad, it says, Fire came out from God to consume all the sacrifices on this celebratory occasion of the Yom Hashmini. And then it says, another of you took their fire pans, and exactly the same phrase, Fire came out from God and consumed them. We almost have a very chilling symmetry where the fire comes out from God to consume the sacrifices and then the fire comes out from God to consume Nadav and Avihu. And what is the connection between these two? Um, here it is the Rashbam who helps us a little bit. And he says that uh, maybe he says it's even more frightening than this. He says that the very fire which destroyed Nadav and Avihu, which killed Nadav and Avihu, was the same fire which burnt the sacrifices. In other words, sometimes we look at this fire as coming out. It says, Hashem, fire came out from God, and we, maybe we have this impression that God is in the heavens. And therefore the fire was coming down in a vertical uh, vector, coming down from above to down below. However, according to the Rashbam, and I think according to the Pshat the Psukim here, the fire is actually coming from within the Kodesh HaKodashim. It is coming from inside the Mikdash, from inside the, the sanctuary. And it is coming horizontally. Um, horizontally, it is the same fire which comes to consume the sacrifices, which actually burns Nadav and Avihu an amazing thing. And now the question is, if we're waiting for the fire to come out and consume the sacrifices, why are Nadav and Avihu not waiting for it outside? What are they doing inside the Mikdash at this point? Why did they take the Eish Zara, their foreign fire, 
What were they doing? I think if we look a little further back in Perak Tet, maybe we will um, look at Perak Tet, Pasuk and we read the order of events, we will understand it quite clearly. Let's take a look. I'll read through the Pesukim. Aharon raised up his hands towards the people and blessed them. He's the Kohen Gadol. Maybe he does Birchat Kohanim. It's not clear what bracha he does. Vayered, and he descends from the altar. He comes down from doing all of his sacrifices, from the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. In other words, he's finished the order of the sacrifices. What happens next? Moshe and Aaron come into the Olam They go in, and then they come out, and they bless the people again. <laughs> and we sort of wonder, what's going on here? It, it, hold on, Aaron blessed the people, then he gets down from the altar, then him and uh, Moshe both go inside, they come out, they bless the people, and only at that moment, that's when God's presence appears to all the people. Um, I think what I'd like to suggest here is that a terrible, how should I say it, maybe even put it this way, a terrible mistake transpired here. Nadav and Avihu see that nothing's going on. Aaron's finished all his sacrifices and they're expecting God to appear to the people. That's what it said in the opening Pesukim. God will appear. God will appear to the nation. They're expecting the fire to come down from heaven. And nothing happens. Aaron blesses the people. He gets down. He's waiting. Everything's waiting. Nothing happens. Moshe and Aharon actually enter into the sanctuary to find out what's happening. Um, in fact, uh, Rashi relates to this where he says, Hayu Yisrael nichlamim. Am Yisrael were almost embarrassed and they say to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, kol ha-torach shetarachnu shetre shechina beneinu. Benei dashenit kaper lanu avon ha-egel. We've gone to such, to such lengths in order to build this Mishkan that the Shechina should be within us and that we should know that we've been atoned. atoned. How can it be that fire has not come down from heaven? And it seems like Aharon and Moshe go into the temple. They go inside to the sanctuary to find out what's going on. And they come out, and again, they're waiting for the fire. And in the meantime, what happens? Nadav and Avihu um, go inside, and they have a, a very simple theory. They assume that what they have to do is they actually have to bring fire themselves. Um, and here I will quote a, um, a, a section from the from the Sifra, where the Sifra talks about the idea that Nazar um, Avihu say to each other, Davar um, Acher, I'll read it in English, uh, when they saw that Aaron had offered the sacrifices and performed the prescribed service and God had not yet ascended, descended in revelation to Israel, Nadav said to Avihu, does anyone cook without fire? They immediately went to get fire. Eish Zara, alien fire, and they brought it into the Kodesh HaKadashim. In other words, what Nadav and Avihu did, which was the, the mistake, was they, they didn't wait long enough. Um, they Suddenly the whole 
drama of Nazmavihu is inserted into the time lapse between the sacrifices being offered and the fire descended from Hashem. And uh, I think if you read the Pesukim, you almost sense this time lapse. And according to this, this is a, an almost a terrible, terrible, um, terrible mistake. Now, in this regard, how, how do we sort of explain this? And the only possible way that I can think of explaining this is in uh, respect to the Pasuk which follows this story, where it says, Moshe Moshe said to Aharon, Hu That's what God said when he said, Bikrovai ekadesh, with those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Now, this is a, a sort of a very, very difficult pasuk, and it's not clear at all what it refers to it, what, what, what it refers to. Um, however, there are possible candidates for the pasuk that it refers to. And the 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 phrase which comes to mind is actually immediately after the Miluim. If we follow the events, we have the Miluim in Shemot Perak Haftalad, and then what is described is actually the whole story of the altar, which is exactly what we're doing here. And immediately after that it says, V'noad Tishama Livnei Yisrael, and there I will meet Bnei Yisrael, V'nikdash Bichvodi, they will be sanctified by my honor. And it's almost eerie how this phrase is echoed here in Moshe's world, V'nikdash bichvodi here, Bikrovai ekadesh v'alpnei kol ha'am ekavein. It's almost as if there are two possible ways in which God can be sanctified. God can be sanctified through legitimate fire, the fire on the Mikdash, the fire on the Mizbeach, the fire on the altar, where that fire burns up the sacrifices in a legitimate way, or there's another way that God can be sanctified, and that uh, is almost reminiscent of Har Sinai, where at Mount Sinai we're told that the mountain has God's presence on it, and if somebody comes close and it's uh, illicit, it's illegitimate, then they will be struck down. Uh, we're told there, Loti Gabo Yad, don't even put a hand forward, Kisakoli Sakel or Yaro Yirare, in Behimaim Ishlo he will not live. In other words, when God's presence is so evident, anybody who comes close, even for whatever reason, God's manifest presence is so powerful that anybody who gets in the way is struck down. And a great example of this is what we see in our Haftarah uh, this week. I'm not sure we're reading the Haftarah because of Parashat Parah, but the Haftarah that should be for Parashat Shmini, the story of Peretz Uzzah. So we've given a, a certain scenario where we can understand why it would be that Nadav and Avihu would want to bring fire from the outside. They assumed that the fire that was going to come out from God wasn't going to come from heaven and that man had to do their own effort in order to create the fire. They would have to induce the fire. They would have to do some sort of action to create fire, but they were wrong. But I'd like to move into a third approach. Uh, not Rashi's approach of drunkenness, not the Rashi Palm's approach that the fire of the sacrifices is the self-same fire of the of, of Nazamaravihu, but a third approach, and this is the approach of something said in the Sforno. 
And before we get to the Sforno, uh, we'll quote another comment from the Sifra. Um, a very strange comment, but I will uh, read it to you. They were so joyous on this occasion of God's revelation. When they saw new fire. They decided to add love to love. What does it mean when it says, and they took? The taking of the fire was out of joy. And this uh, passage in the Sifra is fascinating because it doesn't insert Nadavanavihu's bringing of the fire into the lapse, the time lapse between when Aaron came down from the Mizbeach and between when fire came out from God. But actually, when they saw God's fire, they said, we would like to reciprocate. God gave us fire. We would like to bring our own fire. The phrase used is Simcha. And Ishchadasha, they wanted to bring, they saw God's new fire, and they, they wanted to add love to love. By the way, do note that according to all of these interpretations, Nadavanavihu are not seen as bad people. They're seen as Sadiqim, they're seen as good people with pure motivations. Nonetheless, sometimes even the purest of motivations are inappropriate or mistaken. And this is exactly what I would like to to suggest. This is a very esoteric explanation. It's very difficult. But it seems like this. They saw God's love for his people by means of the fire that he sent to bless the endeavors of man, our Korbanot. And they wished to reflect that act back on God. They wanted almost to imitate God, to dedicate their own religious acts to, to Hashem, in a reflection of Hashem's actions to man. Rav Shinshraval Hirsch explains that their motivations were ideal, even though their methods were highly inappropriate. Um, and the verses stress their independent acts. They didn't even consult with the religious authorities of Moshe and Aharon. <clears throat> what, what, what is going on here? It seems like they are intending to bring something chadash. They're intending to bring their own independent religious expression outside any of the um, prescriptions of the Korbanot. Let's remind ourselves that we've just read Vayikra chapter 1 to 7 where the laws of the Korbanot, the laws of the temple, are very, very tightly defined. They're very, very strict. They have their own very precise formulation and set of guidelines. And this notion of bringing Eish Chadash to reflect God's Eish Chadash, or maybe I'll quote Ravash. He says this, All offerings are formulae of the demands of God. Self-devised offerings would be a killing of just those very truths which our offering are meant to impress and dominate the bringer's and would be placing a pedestal on which to glorify one's own ideas, not by fresh inventions, even of God-serving novices, but by carrying out that which is ordained by God has the Jewish priest to establish the authenticity of his activities. I'm not sure, you know, if this sounds overly harsh, but uh, what Rosh Hashanah Hirsch is saying is that even if 
Nadam Rabi who sought to sort of like on this great celebratory occasion, they sort of got so excited that they invented their own korbanot. They invented their own Seder Abudah. They invented their own ritual order. And and this was considered to be illegitimate. Now, this characterization of Nadavana Bihu um, as filled with love, as filled with their own initiative, as filled with a sort of almost like a free-flowing Spirit of God is fascinating. And it's here that I'd like to turn our attention to the Svarana. Because the Svarana makes a fascinating comment at this juncture. This is what he says. Um, he says, <clears throat> just looking for the reference here. Okay. He's, you know, all right. I will, I will give you the background of of the of the what the Sforno says. The Sforno says says the following. Um, he points out something something amazing that Nazav and Avihu. Uh, we've already seen them in a particular context, and this context is on Har Sinai, in Shemot chapter twenty four. Um. We read about how certain individuals were invited up Har Sinai. It says there that uh, Moshe was told to come up the mountain, him and Aharon, Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders, and to bow down to God from a great distance. But when they do bow down, what do they do? They see Elohei Israel, they somehow get a vision of God. They see some sort of uh, sapphire color. But uh, it says there, God did not strike down these special people amongst B'nai Israel. And it is here that the Mepharshim say that uh, there was something a bit wrong. They looked too far on Har Sinai and that God didn't strike them down then. But when did he strike them down? At a later time. Nazim and Abiyu were struck down here and the Shivim Zakenim were struck down later also by fire at uh, Tavera. Um, now this is an enigmatic Midrash, but I've always uh, been drawn to it and fascinated by it, because this is a scene where people um, are invited up Harsinai to gain a, a unfiltered encounter with Hashem. They, they are able to actually behold Hashem Vayochlu Vayishtu and they, they, they drink and they, they, they eat in celebration. And I've always wondered whether this is the source of the Midrash that we just read in the Sifra, the Lohosif Ahava Alahava. What is this sort of uh, desire for Eish for new experience, for um, some sort of immediate contact with God? Could it possibly be that Nadav Avihu on the first day, when they're very excited, Vayirak von Hashem, they're so excited to behold the presence of God, they're actually looking to get back up to Har Sinai. They're looking to go to that unfiltered, very, very uh, close, intimate rendezvous, encounter with Hashem, where they're actually given the opportunity to encounter God um, in, a, in an almost raw, frontal sense. And... This is what they experienced in Shemot chapter 24. 
and now they're yearning to do it again. For them, it is not enough just to see the fire come down from heaven onto the altar to burn up the sacrifices. They want to get closer, they want to get deeper into the relationship. They don't want the fire to come down from heaven, they want to go up to the fire. They want to go up to the top of the mountain where HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence, again, as described in Shemot chapter 24, is It is like a consuming fire at the top of the mountain. And they are seeking that fire. They had this thrill of being able to have a direct encounter with God and they are yearning to have it again. And here we see sometimes, um, and here I return to Rav Hirsch, the danger of raw spirituality which can sometimes suck a person in. Or, well, there's no problem with raw spirituality as long as a person abides by the halakha, a person abides by the rules. And as I say, at this point in Sefer Vayikra, Nadav and Avihu have already read, along with us, through seven detailed chapters of Korbanot, that mention nothing at all about um, responding to God's fire with Ketoret, with Eshzarah, with fire which does not come from the Mizbeach, um, and therefore, in search of this uh, spiritual contact with God, they try to respond to get back up Har Sinai, and this exactly was their flaw, this was their fault. So, we've come up with some very different approaches to Nadvanavihu. We mentioned briefly the approach of Rashi, the drunkenness, but we focused on two other approaches. One sees Nadvanavihu as using their initiative to try and solve a sort of hiccup in the choreography of the affairs when the fire doesn't come down soon enough and they come to try and sort of uh, kickstart the event to bring their fire in order to induce God's fire but it doesn't work and that same fire kills them. In in the other situation uh, we see them not trying to instigate fire on the altar but rather trying to respond to the fire on the altar and trying to increase that fire by... Uh, taking the love of God and taking it higher and responding with their own love. Now, what seems to emerge from both of these explanations is a sort of caution on human initiative in the realm of Avodat Hashem. And uh, this is a sort of a, a difficult message, because on the one hand, we all would like to see ourselves, our person involved emotionally with our Avodat Hashem. We all want to be able to engage emotionally in our religion. Um, and the question is how we can package our emotional world, our spiritual passion, and bring it close to God. And I think that the message that has to come out of this story is that our passion is, is incredibly important. Um, all the people are invited to this moment of revelation so they can witness it. And at the same time, as we surge forward with great passion, um, we cannot disregard the system of rules and regulations, even if we have the best of intentions, because that is a potential for disaster. And that when we do try and approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu with all of our religious um, desire, we have to do so within the rules of the Halakha, and that way it will be, it will be appropriate. It won't be Asher Loti Valtam, but it will be Ka'asher Tziva Hashem et Moshe ve'et Taharon.
Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom.